Well, good morning. That's awesome. Wow, that excites me. Um, as many as received the Lord, they were given the right to be the children of God. How many of you received Christ? You know what that means? You're a new creature. It means you spiritually became alive. Um, it's your moment of spiritual conception. And now you're on the journey to becoming a child of God. Isn't that cool? Now, actually, you are a child of God, just like the baby in the womb is a child of God, right? Or your child, while it's growing and developing. But you haven't been born into eternity yet. Being born into eternity is when you're born into the presence of your father as a spiritual being, as a child of God. Now, there's another verse that says, as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God. Now, this is interesting. The point of conception is when we receive Christ, but it's being led of the Spirit that means we are a child of God. You see, it's not just a moment, it's a process. The Bible also says that those who God foreknew, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, obviously, I have four children, and all four of my children are different, but yet they all reflect characteristics of myself and my wife, which we would expect, right? It's very interesting because my wife and I are totally different. And my eldest son, just like my wife, is a redhead. And he, he approaches life just with abandon, you know. Um, he doesn't think before he does. He just does it. My younger son, Jonathan, is the intellectual. He's the dark hair one. He's more like me. He, he studies things and researches things before he goes ahead and does something. Two totally different approaches to life, reflective of the parents. Now, in the same way, we are supposed to be being changed, conformed, to become like our elder brother, Christ. The idea is that by the time we are born into eternity, you all may call it death, I call it being born, by then we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're supposed to be mature babies in the kingdom. So the question is, if this is God's purpose, if this is God's plan, what is the image of Christ? Now, that's a good question. It's not his physical appearance we're trying to be formed into. It's his spiritual image. Anybody have any idea what the image of Christ might be? And this is, this is a real question. You can answer. Call out an answer. Um, I'm used to working with kids, so when I ask questions, <laughs> I actually expect a response. So what's the image of Christ? Who wants to take a shot? There's no wrong, well, there could be a wrong answer, but it's unlikely that there's, because there's a lot of different issues. Someone give me a chance here, please. I'm begging you. Love. love. Good. God is love. So love is a correct answer. How about another answer? Yes. Faithful. High five. Pow. I love faithful. Because God is faithful. Christ was faithful even to the cross, correct? Very good. Give me another one. Life. He wasn't death. He wasn't uh, oppression. He wasn't fear. He was life. Vitality. Another one. 
a provider. Oh my goodness. God is our Jehovah provider. Amen. That's part of the image of Christ. We experienced that out in the lobby, didn't we? There was a, a woman who was desperately looking for something to drink. And I had a bottle of water, which I was going to drink, and I had a cup of water, and I gave her the bottle. I provided for a need for her. That's part of the image of Christ, us providing for the needs of those around us, right? Okay, another quick one. Another, another image of Christ. Anybody have one? A friend. Excellent. Over here? Merciful. Oh, praise God, he's merciful. I need his mercy. <laughs> All of these are correct. And I'm going to throw a new one at you. I'm going to throw a new one at you because it's one that we as Americans don't think a lot about. You see, the American society, we're very result-oriented, okay? We're all about, we're doers. Americans are doers. We get things done, right? One of the first questions you ask when you meet someone new is, hey, what do you do for a living? What's your job? And we actually define people by what they do for a living. You see, it's interesting that that's how the Western perceives value, where most of the world, it's all about what's your family, what's your tribe. You see, it's more relational how they view people as opposed to what we do. But I want to tell you a new way to look at being a child of God, and that is being led by the Holy Spirit. See, the one thing that separated Christ from all humanity was that he was 100% led by the Spirit. Remember, he goes to the river, he gets baptized, he comes out of the river, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit to go where? The wilderness. Who's waiting for him in the wilderness? Satan. Now, what's interesting is this period of temptation was not something that Satan just sort of hijacked God's will. No. You see, God allowed Jesus himself to be tempted before Jesus began his ministry. After the temptation, this is what the Bible says. And Jesus went up into Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, verse 1, he's full of the Holy Spirit. But after his temptation and his overcoming, he goes into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. If you seek power in God's Holy Spirit, you first got to be willing to go through the wilderness. I, I tell young missionaries, I say, listen, if you ever expect to do something great for God, you will go through the wilderness. There is no shortcuts. People, you don't just get saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and life is wonderful. God wants you to grow. He wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I'm a storyteller, and I've, I've just about preached all I know, and so now we're going to get to the story, okay? How do we know that Jesus was led of the Spirit? There's this, there's this crazy story uh, about Jesus teaching in the temple. Now, the temple is actually divided into multiple courtyards. The outer courtyard is called the court of the Gentiles. Anybody's allowed there, Jews, Greeks, Romans, and there's no big deal. 
But there, inside that courtyard, there's a small fence that goes around the proper temple. Hanging from that fence are these little signs that basically say, if you cross this line, you die. It's written in Greek, Hebrew, and I think it was Latin. Yeah. And basically, it was a warning. If you're not a Jew, you can't cross this line. In order to get to the, to the first inner court, you walk up steps, you go through the gate, beautiful, you're now standing in the court of the women. In the court of the women, everybody else, every Jew is allowed, men, women, and children. If you walk across that court, you go up another set of steps, and you go into the court of the Jews, or what they call the court of the men, the court of the Israelites. Only men are allowed beyond that point. Keep going up another set of steps. You go into the court of the priest. This is where the sacrifices take place, out on the open court. Finally, you go through a, a final gateway up a set of stairs into the holy place. Go to the end of the holy place, another set of stairs. You go to the holy of holies. So that's the ascension going through each of the courtyards. Now, Jesus says that he goes to the temple to teach. Where in the temple is he? Well, the Bible gives us a clue. Remember the story he tells about the widow putting her offering in the money box? She puts in two pennies, the story of the widow's mite. The offering box in the temple is in the court of the women. That way, both men and women can give their offerings. So Jesus used to go up the steps through the gate beautiful, sit in the court of the women, and teach men, women, and children, and preach to them. Now, there's something interesting, though, that's happening here that none of us really think about. You see, there are, these are the steps that go up into the court, okay? Every day for 38 years, a layman is carried and set on the steps where this man would half lay and half sit and beg of the people going in to the temple. Alms, alms. Did Jesus walk by the lame man? Well, it says that he was there every day, the lame man. The only way Jesus can get into the temple is to walk past him. So Jesus indeed had to walk past this lame man. Not once, but numerous times. He never stopped and healed him. Why? Isn't Jesus merciful? Doesn't he care for this poor Jewish man? Why doesn't he stop and heal him? There's only one explanation. Jesus himself gives the explanation. He says, I do the works of the Father. I only do the things he tells me to do. I only say the things he tells me to say. You see, Jesus was being led of this Holy Spirit. So now it begs the question, why didn't the Spirit lead Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, to heal this guy? Are you as baffled as I am? There's something wrong with this story. Well, we know that Jesus is arrested. He's crucified. He's buried. He comes back to life. 
And then he ascends to heaven, and his disciples are waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls. Man, a revival breaks out. 2,000 people, or actually 2,000 men, it says, which means if a man got saved, his whole family would get saved. So over 2,000 families are saved that day. The Bible says then, book of Acts, chapter 3, Peter and John went up to pray. Three o'clock in the afternoon, it's the hour of prayer. Anybody here learn the song in kids' church? I bet Debbie Chapin can sing it. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on their way. He stuck out his palm and asked for an alm. And this is what Peter did say. What did Peter say to the lame man? Silver and gold I don't got, right? Then what did he say? Debbie, would you stand up and say that loud so everyone? No, no, just, I, you don't have to sing it. Just say that last part. She's got to sing it to get it. No. Okay, now, you see, we don't think that big of a deal. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, right? But what you've got to understand here is that that title, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it's a very definite title and statement. There is only one Jesus of Nazareth. You hear me? You see, it wasn't a generic Jesus. It wasn't a generic Christ. It was someone very specific in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up, rise up, walk. What happened? Suddenly, Peter grabs this guy by the hand. Now, you want to talk about faith. <laughs> Starts lifting him up. Suddenly, the guy's ankles and his legs become solid. He stands to his feet. This guy, he is really excited. <laughs> the Bible says he goes running and leaping, and he's rejoicing, and he's praising God. And there's such a commotion. Thousands of people are gathering around, and Peter stands up and preaches a message, and 3,000 people, men, get saved. Now, this happened late in the afternoon. The whole courtyard, the whole temple area is going crazy, okay? So the, the priests send the Roman guard down, and they grab a hold of Peter and John. They're trying to figure out what this chaos is, and they, they just say, well, we'll figure it out tomorrow, so they throw them in jail overnight. The next day, they get called before the high priests, Caiaphas, Annas, all of the great leaders who were involved in getting Christ crucified. Okay? Now, watch what happens. They ask a very specific question. They say, in whose name or by what power was this man healed? I'm about to put something in perspective for you. Authority and power is associated with a living man, not a dead man. Let me explain. 
as long as the king is alive or Caesar is alive, what he says is law, correct? The moment he dies, his authority dies with him. Somebody else takes his place. And now who has the authority and the power? The new guy. You see, the dead have no power and no authority. Only the living. And when Peter looks in the face of those religious leaders and he tells them, I want you to know, it was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man that you crucified, the man that you buried, the man that we saw alive. It's in his name that this man stands before you well. You see, that man is proof that the, the man that they crucified is alive. See, Peter could have spoken all day and said, well, I've seen him alive. And they're thinking, yeah, you've been smoking pot. Right? They say, yeah, you saw a shadow. You saw a ghost. That's not proof. You being an eyewitness is not proof. But when Peter says, not only did we see him alive, here's the proof standing before you. It's in his name. This man stands before you hold. They were speechless. They had no argument. There was nothing they could say that would take away from the fact that in the name of the man they crucified, this man was alive and healed and totally whole. You see, Jesus, when you're led by the Spirit, just like Jesus, he walked by a man in need, but the Holy Spirit didn't speak to him to stop and take care of the man's need. Therefore, Jesus, being obedient to the Holy Spirit, did what you and I would think is unnatural. And I want you to know something today. The hardest thing you will master in your life is being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and following the Holy Spirit and doing the works that the Holy Spirit leads you to do. You see, you were not made to do works. You were not born of the Spirit to do works. You be, did not become a child of God to do works. But God the Father in his ultimate wisdom, has prepared works in advance for you to do, and his spirit will lead you to those points. Why is it important that we do for the Father? It's twofold. One, we're being taught to be led of the Spirit. Two, we're being taught to have faith to do that which is impossible. You follow me? You see, it takes faith to be led of the Spirit because sometimes the Spirit leads us to do something contrary to our human in intellect. I'm going to talk about that in my own life in just a moment. Sometimes the Holy Spirit calls us to do something that we are incapable of doing. And now, let me put this into perspective for you. How many of you call yourself soul winners? You go out and knock on doors and you preach to people. Anybody here? we got one, a couple. It's a rare calling. I want you to know something. For all of you who are sitting there feeling guilty because you're not called to do that, don't feel guilty. 
See, you're not called to go preach the gospel. I'm called to go preach the gospel. Follow me? What does God call you to do? To be led of the Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive the, the, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. What is a witness? Someone who testifies to what they've seen, heard, or experienced. What God has called you to do is to be sensitive to his Holy Spirit, and he will take you to the person that needs to hear your testimony. Hear me? Watch this. I can go and I can harass a person and try to preach the gospel at them. And you know what? They'll just reject it. You see, when you preach, you're pushing someone. You're trying to push them to do something. And the natural response for most American people is when you push, you, when you push them, they push back. They're not receiving what you said. But when God leads you by the Holy Spirit to share a miracle in your life, something remarkable happens. One, you're not pushing. You're, you're merely saying, you know what? I was sick, and God healed me when I prayed. Okay? I, my wife tried to talk me into buying a house. She took me all over Central Florida looking at places. I, didn't, I said, nope, not interested. Nope, not interested. Finally, my wife and daughter dragged me to a place, a neighborhood where I could put a small boat dock in. I got a little teeny John boat, and I could dock my boat and go fishing every day in the morning early before the sun comes up. And the Holy Spirit bore witness with my heart that this was the place to go. And all you men go, yes. (laughs) The problem is, The builder, he didn't want $2,000 or $4,000. He wanted $29,000 down. And I'm laughing. I got $4,000 in my savings account. That's it. And I'm laughing, and I'm going, I need $25,000. And I'm telling Rhonda, we don't come up with $24,000 by tomorrow at 5 o'clock. The builder's not going to let us sign a contract. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not moving. I'm not going to have to sell my house. I'm not going to have to clean out my garage, which is, oh. You know what I'm saying? I'm feeling perfect, pretty confident. The next morning, I get news that one of my churches wanted to give me a gift, a personal gift of $10,000. I'm saying, God, I'm only $15,000 short. So I'm talking on the phone with a person, and I'm telling them this story, and I'm sort of laughing. You know, I'm saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm only $15,000 short. I've only got about two hours before I've got to get signed this contract. And this person says, well, I'll loan you fifteen grand, Rob. <laughs> what? Yeah. We both are at the same bank. Uh, give me your bank account. I'll get a transfer in 30 minutes. Thirty minutes later, I've got enough money to go sign the contract. Now, 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 folks, what I'm trying to tell you, that's my testimony. Do you hear the testimony I'm giving you? I'm giving you a testimony of the provision of God in your life. 
Now, I don't have to preach Jesus to you. All I have to say is I prayed and God provided the $25,000. I don't have to give an altar call at this point. One of two things is going to happen. You're going to say to me, man, would you pray for me? I've got this incredible financial need in my life. Or you may say nothing. Three or four weeks from now, though, you're going to be in chaos. You can't pay your mortgage. You don't know what to do. Who are you going to call? You're going to call the crazy lunatic who told you the story about how he prayed and God provided him $25,000 in 24 hours. Isn't that right? You see, folks, when you go out and you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to share a testimony, amazing things happen. God will lead you to share exactly what that person needs. You don't have to reel them in. You don't have to set the hook. You don't, you got, you're not responsible for the fruit and the harvest. You're just responsible to sow the seed. Okay? I believe in a God that provides. I believe in a God that heals. I believe in a God that rescues family. I believe in a God that meets the needs of my life. I believe in a God who's a provider, a Jehovah Jireh. I believe in a God who answers prayer. They may think you're crazy, but sometime along the way, you know what happens? Suddenly, there's a change of heart. Suddenly, they need God, and that's when they'll call you. Or maybe you're not around. Maybe it was a random person you told this testimony to. You won't even know that Six months later, the seed that you sowed resulted in them talking to someone else who led them to the Lord. What I'm trying to tell you right now is the growth of this church is not by works. The growth in your life is not by works. It's all about being led of the Holy Spirit. I was an executive pastor, one of the largest churches in Florida. We were running in the tens of, or not tens of thousands, we were running in the thousands, like 5,000, and our, our church could not sustain the growth. We'd go up, come down, go up, go down. I was given the job as the executive pastor to relocate the church. We bought 100 acres. It was going to be a $40 million project. Eight years of my life at this church was spent helping to design and relocate the church. We were just about eight months, nine months away from finishing the job. I'm on the third floor of the office suite. I'm sort of daydreaming because here's the senior pastor's office. Right next to it's going to be my office. There's no carpet. There's no ceiling grid in place. The walls are still rough drywall. But I'm daydreaming about what my office is going to look like. And I can only point to a, two or three times in my life when the, I've really felt the voice of God just speak to my heart. And as I'm standing there daydreaming, God spoke to me. Rob, yes, Lord, you'll never move into that office. I rebuke that spirit. I am serious. The voice of God very clearly said I'd never move into that office. And boy, I was not happy. I mean, I'm making really good money, okay? I got a little two-seater sports car. 
there's a three quarter of a mile, three lane road that goes around the parking lot of the new property. Early in the morning, before the construction crews get there, I'm out on that road doing 60 miles an hour, throwing dust and dirt everywhere, just having the time of my life. I've arrived. My career is at its pinnacle. I am influential, financially set, and I am happy. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm not going to stay. I struggled with God. Oh, I struggled. Began to talk to my wife, and she agreed with me. The Holy Spirit was nudging her heart that we should go back into world missions and become missionaries again. One of the hardest decisions I made in my life. It didn't make sense. But remember, God doesn't call you to intellectual decisions. He calls you to follow the Spirit. As many as are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God, not as many as who make intellectual decisions. This was not a very good decision. We moved into the new building. 30 days later, after everything's up and running, I officially leave the church. Six months later, we're back at Faith Assembly of God for the district council, and I'm being introduced as a new missionary to the pastors of Florida. At the end of the service, I'm standing at the altar over here in the corner, and they're singing and they're praising and they're worshiping God, and I'm down here praying, worshiping with the rest, but I'm feeling a little melancholy. I'm standing here, I'm looking around at this 3,000-seat auditorium that I designed and oversaw the construction of. And it was really, I mean, it was great. The stage was set up like a, a theater. We had all kinds of special lighting and catwalks. I had designed, really, this was the ultimate church design, in my opinion. And as I'm standing there feeling a little melancholy, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Rob, yes. I was feeling real gun-shy that night. And the Holy Spirit said to me, Rob, you've given up all of this. Ask me for anything, and I'll give it to you. Now, y'all think us missionaries are spiritual people. We are carnal, just as carnal as you are. We're, we're really no different than you. We've just been called to something else. The first thought that went through my mind when the Holy Spirit asked me to name anything and he'd give it to me, was Red Ferrari. I'm not kidding you. That, whew, red Ferrari. And then I started laughing. I'm at the altar and I'm laughing at myself. You say, why are you laughing? Because I had cut my salary in half becoming a missionary. I couldn't afford the insurance on a Red Ferrari if someone gave it to me. And then I started thinking, well, Lord, I need to get my missionary budget raised. But then I thought, wait a minute, you called me. It's your job to provide for the calling. So I said, nah. Now, folks, if the creator of the universe asks you, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you, you know, don't settle for a, Denny, a Denny's dinner or something. You know what I'm saying? Go big. You know, go big. He's the king of kings, the Lord of our lords. He's got the wealth of the cattle and a thousand hills. You know, he can do anything. And while I'm standing there, earlier that night, they had sung a song out of Psalms 2, verse 8. 
And this, was, this is what this says. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. And in that moment, I began to pray. I said, Lord, all of this doesn't matter. This isn't, I haven't really given up anything for you. If I could have anything here in this part of my life and career, give me the nations. Now, I have to put something in context for you. God had called me to go to work with a ministry called the Oral Learners Initiative. Oral learners are people who learn by talking to one another. Okay? So that's typically one-on-one. You know, the ministry's previous work had been done among the Maasai warriors in Tanzania. And so for me to win the nations is impossible because I'm called to the wrong ministry. I mean, I'm trying to be led by the Holy Spirit, but God, you have missed it. What are you doing, God? But someone called out faithful before. Raise your hand. You are correct. God calls us to be led of the Spirit and to be faithful. He doesn't call us to understand. He doesn't call, you know, God never shows up early. You know that? He always shows up like at the last second. Why does he want, why does he do that? To teach you to trust him. Okay? It's easy if he shows up a week early. Not so much if it's like you got 24 hours to come up with $25,000. You know what I'm saying? And, and by the way, the reason why God does that is he wants to make sure you understand it's him and not somebody else who's doing it. Hear me? So I find myself in a little teeny car in India. We're banging down a road, heading out to the villages. It's, um, the car I'm in is literally as wide as this altar is here. I'm all crammed up in this little teeny seat. My knees are pressed up against the dash. The little old man next to me, Marcus Devesheim, is driving. He looks exactly like the old TV character, Mr. Magoo. Big, thick glasses. Now, Dr. Marcus Devesheim is extremely educated. Ten earned degrees, including a doctorate. The guy is very smart. And as we're driving down this road, I've got my missionary associate, Jonathan, sitting in the back seat. He's all bent over like this. He can barely move. And we are out on the way going south to where the jungle is to go out to a village. Craziest thing you've ever seen. I'm all cramped up. He's there. I'm here. The dotted line of the freeway is running right through the middle of the car. He's in the fast lane. I'm in the middle lane. We're doing 50 miles an hour. Tractor trailers. Cars. Sports cars. Motorcycles. A guy on a moped. Everybody's passing us. Okay? I mean, and the traffic's just weaving in and out. You know, and I'm just saying, praise God. Okay. You see, laws in India... Motor laws in India are really more suggestions, so I'm not too 
excited. A year later, I find out why Marcus is driving, straddling the dotted line. He's got cataracts, can't see. Out of the peripheral vision, he sees the dotted line. It also explains why he's asking me, Rob, what does that sign say? It's all in Gujarati, which is a bunch of little squiggles and dashes. I have no idea what it says. But he can't see. When you pray for missionaries, let me tell you what. It's important. It really is. I think there was angels all around us that was just keeping everybody off of us that day. So we end up in a minivan. We're heading out into the jungle. And uh, we're going out to a village. And here's the story he's telling me. Let me back up for a second here and put something in context. I'm a television producer, writer, director, producer. Uh, I was a missionary in Belgium. I wrote and produced kids' TV shows. Um, I'm a very visual guy. You know, we've got hundreds of millions of people worldwide watching those TV shows. And so that's my expertise, television production, writing. I'm a very visual learner. So that's my skill set, and God sent me to this oral learners thing. Okay, and I still hadn't figured it out three and a half years after becoming a missionary with the oral learners. The director of the ministry had retired, had left me in charge. <laughs> a video guy in charge of oral learners. Go figure, right? Didn't make sense. None of this makes sense. And here I am with Mr. Magoo, Dr. Devisham, in this minivan bouncing down a dirt road, going out into the jungle to a, a village church that he had planted 30 years earlier. And here's the story he's telling me. He's saying, Rob, 30 years ago I planted this church, had a great revival, but they were all illiterate. None of them qualified to go to Bible school. They couldn't even read a Bible. I had to go back week after week after week after week after week and disciple them and mentor them and raise up men to be leaders to form the church there. He says, I'm an old man now. None of the, the new college graduates, they all want to work in the city and go to churches where there's money and air conditioning and running water and toilets. None of them want to go live in the village and plant churches. See, the villages have a need. 600,000 villages in India, very few churches. Six million villages worldwide, very few churches. Why? The young men who go to Bible school, once they go to the city, they never want to go back to the villages. And as Dr. Marcus is telling me the story, I had a supernatural moment with God. It was a divine appointment. And suddenly, 10 or 12 different thoughts came together. They were like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that suddenly rotated and snapped into place. And God laid out for me in five seconds a plan to reach the six million villages of the world. You can't have a church without a pastor. And here's the plan God gave me. Can we show that video, please? Over 5 billion people do not know Jesus. Many of these live in oral societies. But how can we plant churches in these hard-to-reach places? 
The answer is simple. You raise up leaders within these communities and teach them to pastor. The Oral Learners Bible Institute is creating an entire three-year Bible school made up of video lessons produced in the students' own language. Lessons are delivered to them on small micro SD memory cards. The student places the memory card into their own mobile phone. Now they can watch the video lessons over and over again at their convenience. Imagine what would happen if a single church discipled just two church planters to start new churches in their own communities. And then these two church planters each discipled two more church planters. In just 10 years, the one church would have become at least 100 churches. Now picture thousands of churches around the world training pastors and planting new churches. Within 30 years, there could be over 1 million new churches. The Oral Learners Bible Institute, Olby. Training pastors to plant churches all over the world. God has a sense of humor. Called a video guy to an oral ministry. He didn't tell me why. He just told me to be faithful. He just told me to obey. Three years later, God reveals something that's going to change the world. Three years later, God gives me a hint on how he's going to give me the nations as an inheritance. I can't take credit for this. The only thing I can take credit for is that I had enough common sense to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Right now, we're working in 14 different languages. India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Arabic for the Middle East, Portuguese for Mozambique, Spanish for Latin America, and I can't even remember the other ones. Only a God could do this thing. And folks, I want to challenge you this morning. Oh, tell you how exciting this is? That little micro SD memory card. You saw the picture of the guy putting it in his phone who was holding it in his hand? That was our very first student ever. The guy named, his name is Pintubat. He lives in Jaipur, India, and he's illiterate. He wants to pastor a church, but he's illiterate. Every one of our lessons is a video. Because these are oral or narrative learners, every video has a story that's being told. And we have video footage of the life of Christ that we show while the story's being told. You know, these are, these are YouTube-length lessons, 10 minutes long, 12 minutes long. The students using their own phone and an $8 microSD memory card takes them 15 to 30 minutes a day to see the lesson and do the assignment. They don't have to leave their village. They don't have to leave their home. They don't have to leave their job but they can plant a church right there in their own village. we got about 800 students studying in the Hindi language right now. That was our very first launch this past summer. Folks, where are you at in your life? Are you just cruising in your relationship with God? Are you doing the church thing 
You come to church, and the rest of the week, you just sort of wait till next Sunday to do your church thing. See, if you're not being led of the Spirit, are you saved? Now, I'm not going to go goofy on you. I'm not saying you're all backslidden and going to hell. No, that's not the point. The point is, as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God. When you received Christ, that was the moment of conception. The part of you that's being transformed into the image of Christ is your spirit and soul. We are all in the womb, that's this physical universe, awaiting the day of our birth into eternity. Your body is the umbilical cord that holds your spirit and soul to this earth. Your body, just like the umbilical cord of a baby, gives nutrient and life so that this can grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. When the umbilical cord has served its purpose, the baby's ready to be born. One traumatic moment, the baby's pushed out. Can you imagine? Here's that baby all nice and secure and warm. All of a sudden, they get pushed out. For the first time in their nine months, their eyes open and they see light, color, movement. Hearing crystal clear. There's a sensation, there's temperature, there's, there's movement in the room, in the space, and their little arms and legs shoot out as they reach to try to find the boundary, and there isn't any, and they pull their little arms back in. They begin to breathe and smell, and it suddenly ignites the desire to eat, and they're... Other words, how long does it take the baby to forget what it was like in the womb? Seconds because they're in sensory overload. Everything they thought they knew for nine months doesn't matter anymore, doesn't apply. But the nine months are critical because it's during those nine months that the baby is conformed into the image of its parents. Right now, you're in the womb. You should be being conformed to the image of Christ. And the time will come when this body gives out this umbilical cord that's holding my spirit and soul to this world. When it releases me, I get pushed out of this world into the presence of my Father. How long do you think it's going to take me to forget about this life? Everything I've done, everything, all of my works will be meaningless. There'll be no comparison. I will be in spiritual sensory overload. And then, that's when my true life begins. I was conceived when I accepted Christ, when I received him. Now I'm through the conforming process to become like Christ. Where are you at in the process? I want to challenge you this morning. And I'm a few minutes over, but I'm going to challenge you as I close. Pastor, I want to challenge you to examine your heart And if you've just been living and not being led, I want to challenge you to stop doing and start being. Stop doing church things. Start being led. Be conformed to the image of Christ. All that other stuff will happen. You'll find yourself doing. Why? Because God will bring you to the point where you go, you know what? I think I want to work with the boys in Royal Rangers. I don't know why. I just have a sudden desire doesn't make any sense because I don't like boys and kids I was called to children's ministry and I didn't even like kids 
one night at the altar, the Holy Spirit changed my heart, changed my view on children. And I went from being a person that worked with teenagers and adults to people that worked with kids. And for the next 25 years of my life, I devoted to kids ministry. See, folks, be led of the Spirit. The rest will sort itself out. That's my challenge to you today. God bless you.